Good morning. So yeah, we go back a long ways, at least to the early 2000s, uh, but I grew up with Richard Martins, one of your past pastors, and uh, Herman Plett actually did uh, his internship at St. Anne's Community Church, where I'm from, down in the peninsula. So we normally come every two years while we were down in Mexico, but I think COVID messed it up. I think it's been at least three years since we had a chance to be here physically. Uh, but we've um, been able to be with you digitally, I think, at least twice, and so that's been good. As you may have remembered, Annie and I have been serving in Mexico, as, as Tamil said, with Multiply, uh, working with indigenous people, unreached indigenous, and I'm pretty sure this church, I don't have to explain all those terminologies like unreached. Uh, so indigenous people in Mexico, and uh, but God was working through our ministry from the very beginning in a way that uh, what we wanted to do was raise up local people to continue to do this. And so as we explained in the sermon in February, um, that's we had reached a point where the people we were working with were able to continue on. And so we uh, felt God calling us to come back to Ontario and to continue to serve in his kingdom in uh, different ways. I'm working a little bit with Derek Prentow and looks like I'll be doing more and more. Uh, multiply missionary working with First Nations here in Canada, so I'll be doing more and more of that. Also working together with Multiply Head Office in training new missionaries uh, to go out into the world, because that was a large part of what Annie and I were focusing on, so that's our background. Today, though, it's not going to be a missions sermon as such. It's going to be, uh, actually, the, this, the, the third song. I liked all three songs. And the first one, especially with uh, walking out or running out of the tomb, was it run or walk? Ran, Ran out of the tomb. Like, that, was, that was powerful. I really liked that. It made me actually want to change my sermon and talk about uh, Lazarus coming out of the tomb. Uh, but I have my notes, and I don't have the notes for anything else, so um, we'll work on what I had already prepared. But the, the third song is actually just, and I don't know who picked them or how, but um, uh, the... the Chorus, open my eyes in wonder, show me who you are. And that's exactly what I want to talk about this morning. Uh, the passage, we're going to start by reading a, a passage from John 14. It's a little bit long. I'm going to try to read a lot of scripture this morning, partly because I want it to, the, this idea that I'm going to bring out today, I really want us to see Jesus and see the Father through him. So in John 4... You guys can see it behind me? Yeah, okay. Jesus is saying this to his disciples. You know the way to where I'm going. No, we don't, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? Remember, they've already been together for a little while. Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. So, this passage is getting at, this will be the center of what I want to get at here today, that 
Jesus shows us the Father in ways that weren't possible yet. So if you think of the big context, Jesus has arrived uh, after roughly 2,000 years of God concentrating his revelation, starting with Abraham and going through the prophets, Moses, uh, the, the judges, the kings, and all that. So God has been revealing himself to the Israelites, to the Jewish people. That's been going on for 2,000 years. And it's coming into a point because we know that Jesus came at the fullness of time. And what's the kind of the dominant idea that the religious leaders of the day, the people who should have most understood the revelation of God to that point, because God was doing his, I would say, God was doing his best to reveal himself, and the people who were most responsible for understanding that, did they get it? They're exactly the people who didn't get it, right? So there's something there that tells us about the revelation outside of Jesus Christ. It's, it's really like obscure in a sense. The people most living in it, like we have to go back and read books about the context and the culture and stuff like that, and even then we argue about what that means. And These guys didn't have to do that. They were living it, and they misunderstood God's revelation. So here Jesus is coming into the middle of that, and he's saying to his disciples, I reveal the Father. And in ways, and we'll get to some other passages that make it very clear that it's just in ways that go beyond anything anyone could have ever imagined. It took God sending Jesus to reveal who he really was. He was trying all along, but for a lot of different reasons, that wasn't working. So the, the more immediate passage or uh, context here is that just a couple chapters uh, previous in 11, um, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Then in chapter 12, uh, his sister... Uh, Mary, uh, Lazarus' sister Mary, uh, pours out that expensive perfume all over him. Then in 13, we get uh, the washing of the feet, the, uh, the betrayal, or at least the announcement of the betrayal in the Last Supper. And this is the context to the next four chapters, 14 through 17. And this long section is called the final discourse or the farewell discourse because Jesus is getting ready to move on. We know that right after that. He'll be tried and he'll be put to death. And so this farewell course is actually 200 words longer than the Sermon on the Mount. It's the biggest chunk of anything that Jesus is telling us. And he starts it by saying this twice. He like repeats it a number of different ways, trying to get through to them that he reveals the Father in ways that just weren't possible otherwise. And so this big idea has a lot to do with this particular church, Evergreen. I asked somebody earlier over here about, do you guys know what Anabaptist means? And over here he assured me that Jeff had used that term and that concept a lot with you. And so we're going to get, I'm going to do a kind of a historical summary here for you. I don't know how good you guys are at history and how much you slept through it in high school or whatever, but I'll try to keep it short enough. And it's going to come in on what it means for us to be Anabaptists. So we all know, of course, roughly 2,000 years ago, Jesus was doing his thing in the Middle East. And when the apostles, when the disciples carried that on in the book that we, in Acts, and we read about the churches starting, well, some of those churches still exist. I don't know if you were aware of that. There's a little bit of churches that have survived 2,000 years. But those particular churches didn't end up influencing our European background type story. So um, as... As the gospel, as the church spread, it spread up into Asia Minor, what we would call Turkey today. 
by the second, third century, and then the third, fourth century it was uh, taking over in, in Italy, and by the, by the seventh, eighth century, most of Europe was now more or less under a Christian heading, under a Christian uh, leadership. And of course, in Europe, that became the Roman Catholic Church for roughly at least a thousand years. I don't know if you know this, but the Roman Catholic Church came to dominance in Europe because the Roman Empire, the political empire, fell apart. And they actually moved their headquarters over to what today is Constantinople in Turkey. And they left behind Italy and most of Europe, and the church stepped in. So when the church stepped in, and it's a little more complicated than this, of course, and people you know, get doctorates and still disagree with each other about these things, but somewhere in that 300s into the 400s, the, the church, which became the Roman Catholic Church, decided, or, or in their pursuit of God, they took power to themselves. Because there was a power vacuum, the political power people had moved away. They'd already been kind of lifted up into a bit of power by Constantine, but then when the Roman political forces left, they were the only thing running the, the, the empire anymore. And so the Holy Roman Empire came up, and that was dominant for roughly a thousand years. In that time, there were people, movements, trying to reform, trying to do things differently, but there just wasn't enough traction, there wasn't enough synergy between different things. So, But by the 1500s, you were getting movements in the area of social relationships, you were getting movement in ideas of philosophy, how do we understand things, categorization. It's actually interesting, it came to Europe through Muslims, uh, bringing Greek thought back into Europe. And in the, the economic world, the scientific world, we all know about the, the Enlightenment and the different the scientific revolutions. So these were a lot of factors beginning to change, starting roughly 11, 12, 1300. And of course, religion was in the middle and holding it all together, that worldview. And so religion or religious thought was beginning to change. But until the 1500s, there just wasn't enough anything to pull it all together. So in the early 1500s, a big thing happened, and in 25 years, you had all kinds of reformers coming out of the woodwork. Some were pretty crazy. Look up Munster Revolution someday and uh, see what those guys were doing. They were actually called some of the earliest Anabaptists. But the two that probably most people and with a church background would remember, of course, is Martin Luther and John Calvin. And all the, the reform-type churches would trace their roots to John Calvin. So in southern Ontario, probably John Calvin is more influential than Martin Luther. The thing is, though, in their Reformation, they didn't do one thing. They didn't question the right for the church to have power. So all along the Roman Catholic Church, and I'm not trying to pick on Roman Catholics, that's not the issue here, it's just that the worldview of that people, they understood that power was integral to their being the church. And so what are called the magisterial reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and a few other people, they never challenged that idea. They just understood that to be the same way. Why? Because they were seeing God, their father, through a different lens than what our Anabaptist people began to do. So they, what informed everything that they were doing was the first things they told themselves about God. So their narrative, their story about who God was, is that he was a powerful conqueror and that he was establishing his kingdom, his reign, in such a way that it gave them the right to subjugate other people. That was their picture of God. So at this very same time, though, there were a couple other people, people like Conrad Grable and Menno Simons, who were looking, and they were affected by all this, and they were, you know, a lot of the movement was 
uh, possible because of some of the things that John Calvin and Martin Luther did. But they were looking at a different place to see who God really was. And they were beginning to read more and more in the Gospels what Jesus was telling them about the Father. And so as they began to do their thing, they looked in at Jesus and saw him as a suffering servant. They saw him as humble. They saw him as giving up his life for the sake of others, even as their enemies. And that's the starting picture that Anabaptist or, uh, yeah, Anabaptist reformers were working from. And they made a big difference because a big part of that, like the center of it, is a rejection of power to establish the kingdom of God. And so they were persecuted heavily. It was just a, that's a whole other complicated thing. But in their persecution, they began to migrate. Now, the, most of the Anabaptists were forming in the Germanic lands, uh, Switzerland, what we would now call Switzerland, and Holland. The Swiss-type people were migrating here to the New World, to Pennsylvania. If you're an indigenous person, you wouldn't call this the New World, but that's what us European background people call it. So, but they were coming here, you know, in the late 1500s, 1600s, they were coming here to flee persecution. While the Dutch-type ones, they went to Poland for a while, then they went to the Ukraine, Russia, and all that. And some of us who have the ethnic last name, that's Mennonite, you know, of course, that story is very familiar to us. And then in the late 1800s into the early 1900s, those people from the Ukraine area began to, to emigrate here to the New World. During the last century, at least, they were doing missions all over the world. And so today, in the Mennonite, the broader Mennonite world, Caucasians or white people are actually a minority. And there's, I just looked it up. The Mennonite World Conference is having their five... 500th anniversary in uh, Indonesia, I think just last week or something it was happening. Uh, 1.5 million Mennonite-type people around the world are Anabaptists and uh, in well over 100 congregation or uh, denominations. So uh, today, it's not the ethnicity and whether my last name is Thiessen or not, that's the issue. It's the ideas of these people 500 years ago, their central belief that Jesus showed us the Father in ways that no one else could do in a more perfect way, and that that was going to be our starting place. So Evergreen is a church within the broader Mennonite Brethren denomination in Canada. And uh, I think from the very beginning, right, you guys have been... So my church, St. Anne's Community Church, wasn't... It was started seven or eight years before this one. We didn't really start within the Mennonite Brethren. Initially, we are now. Um, But from the very beginning, you've been part of this Mennonite Brethren denomination. Well, the Mennonite Brethren is just one of many types of Mennonites, actually the second largest grouping that call themselves Mennonite. And then there's other groups that don't even use the name Mennonite, like uh, Be in Christ or Brethren Christ, uh, sometimes Missionary Church. There's other groups that are part of the Anabaptists, uh, fought, of course, Amish and other people like that as well. They're all in the, uh, the Anabaptist family. So this Anabaptist idea that started there 500 years ago, that we see Jesus... We see the Father best through Jesus Christ was a really good honing in focusing point for the church to begin to understand the rest of reality. The issue is, though, that in the New Testament, we have four Gospels about Jesus, and it's a big package of information or ideas or stories about Jesus. And so even if you hone things into Jesus there's still a lot to disagree about. So that's why there's well over 100 types of Anabaptists today. We all agree that Jesus is the center, but we don't necessarily agree who Jesus is. So what I want to look at today, and first I'm going to look at your own website, uh, I think. Yeah. So the importance of Jesus is 
more, sometimes less highlighted in our Mennonite Brethren churches. And so when I was looking on your website, I was really glad to see this right center almost in, in your website. It says, here's the deal. Evergreen Heights cares about one thing more than anything, Jesus Christ. That actually, I mean, I really liked your website. I don't know who's responsible for it. And hopefully it's more than just on paper. It's a reality here at this church. But that's, that's just a really good statement in my mind as an Anabaptist and uh, as an Anabaptist church. So the broader denomination that we're part of has this on their website, the, the Canadian Conference of Mennonite Brethren, uh, when they're talking in one of their sections about what it means to be Anabaptist. They say it means that Christ is seen as the center and source of our life. It goes on a little bit and it says, since Christ is God's supreme revelation, the Old Testament should be interpreted in light of God's final revelation in Jesus Christ. So that's the background to this particular church in the background of the overall Anabaptist or Mennonite history. But if this was just ideas that white men came up with 500 years ago, a long ways from where we're at today, we could safely ignore it, as we ignore an awful lot of what other people of that era were doing. The thing is, those leaders, those leaders 500 years ago, were looking to Jesus in Scripture and seeing Jesus in a way that I think was important for us. They were willing to die for their newfound uh, insight into who God, was, who God really was. And so, in Scripture, I'd like us to look at a couple passages, starting with John 1. So again, these are all well-known sections of Scripture passages. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. I better read it off of here. Okay. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Then a few verses further. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. No one has ever seen God. But the unique one, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Then in chapter 5 of John, so Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me, therefore my judgment is just, because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me, yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Then in chapter 6, for I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will, for it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life. Hebrews, we don't really know who wrote this, but Hebrews is obviously an integral part of our New Testament. In in, uh, chapter 1, long ago, God spoke many things and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance. And through the son, he created the universe. The son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. Then in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says this, 
They don't understand this message, message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. You see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. So this is what those people 500 years were seeing. The ideas that were expressed in the first century by the followers of Jesus. And this was radical 500 years ago, and sometimes it's still radical today. Because that idea that Jesus, who, who disavowed power, because Philippians 2 tells us that even though he was equal to God, and he had everything that it meant to be God, he gave it all up. That's what God did when he wanted to do his final, best, fullest revelation. So any appeal to power on the part of Jesus' followers is just not seeing Jesus this way. And, you know, I'm not going to say anything more about that. It's just that I don't think they're looking at God through this lens of what Jesus is revealing. And so this, uh, as I said earlier, this gives us a honing in point when we, when we try together. I should back up here a second. We know it's really complicated to understand reality, right? I mean, whether it's, you don't even have to be a Christian or, a, you know, a religious person maybe then it's even more difficult to understand what reality is. We've, we've been trying to figure out what reality is a long time, and Christ followers have used Scripture, obviously, to work at finding this. But any quick look or even extensive look at Christianity shows that even though we all have the same Bible, we come up with some fairly different ideas. And so this honing in point that the Anabaptists had, they were heavily critiqued. This is exactly why they were persecuted, as they said, Jesus is the supreme revelation. So it's a honing in point. Now, that means, though, as I said about the, the variety of Anabaptists, well, Jesus has a lot of different things. So I'm going to tell you my bias this morning. I'm going to tell you my starting point. And this is just Robert talking now. Now, it is after 35 years of living in different cultures, trying to express who God is to people, preaching Jesus in, in different places, in different tongues. Annie and I speak, well, three languages, I guess. Annie, a couple more. Um, and and we've, we've studied scripture, so, but at the end of the day, that's still just me. And the fact that I'm up here with a microphone and you guys are sitting there doesn't mean that my view is any more valid, and we're going to get to that next time I come. But today, the, um, this is my bias, and, and it's my starting point. So I think that's one of the things that is hard when you're discussing religion or theology with other people, is there's this idea that we're all, we, we just believe the Bible. That idea that we just believe the Bible and we're just telling you what the Bible says, that really doesn't work. Because if that were true, we'd basically all agree. So I think it's helpful, I think it's actually honest of us to state what our bias is up front. This is my starting point. This is where I, punto de partida, what's that, Anias? My departure point, where I'm leaving from as I understand. So I believe very strongly that Jesus shows me the Father in ways that nothing else can do. So what about it, though, if Jesus shows me that? So here's my starting place. It's the prodigal son story, or the prodigal son parable. You probably all know it, right? Or most people would know it. In fact, outside the church, we use that, those kind of terms, the, the, the types. Uh, I was actually a prodigal son for a long time. I was Richard Martin's always talked about uh, having to pray extra hard for me. For He was a year younger than me, but uh, anyway... I, so I was a prodigal. I know what that means. And, um, but this story, 
There's only two sons. But there's three misunderstandings. There's three wrong ways of seeing the father. So the younger of the two sons asks for his share of his father's wealth. And he goes far away. I think it's interesting that he goes far away because who wants to squander your father's wealth when he's looking over your shoulder, right? So he goes far away and he's just doing whatever. And, you know, we can imagine. And every generation would probably imagine that slightly differently. So... He represents, or or this stage is his first misunderstanding. He thinks of his father as a source of resources to fulfill his personal selfish desires, and there's no strings attached. This is the first misunderstanding about the father that Jesus is wanting to talk about here. So we know how that plays out, right? He gets to a point where his resources are gone. He has nothing else, and then, uh, again, we can imagine what it meant for him to be destitute. He was out on the street, and he had nothing. So he wakes up, or he has his wake-up moment. This is his second misunderstanding, because what's he say about his father in the second iteration? He says, maybe I can go to my father and convince him to let me be a servant, and at least I'll get enough to get by. And he'll treat me as a servant, and you know, I'll have to suck it up, and you know, it'll be difficult. So we know this is also a misunderstanding. Why? Because the main part of the story, Jesus is setting up the story not to talk about the two boys so much as to talk about his father. And what's the father do? He does enough things that I'm going to actually look at my notes. So in this story, in this parable, the first thing we hear about the father is that he saw him come from a long way off. That's really important. God is always waiting for us to come to him, but he didn't go to wherever that son was, right? He, there was something that the son had to do. But as soon as the son turns, no matter that he has this poor understanding of who his father is in the second go-round, the father is waiting for him from far off. Then it says that he's filled with love and compassion. He wasn't sitting there counting up how much he'd lost because half of his wealth went off and he wasn't tabulating all the offenses and wondering how many wrong things his son did. That wasn't his default. He was sitting there on the porch drinking coffee. Maybe not, but um, you know, to somewhat, if I was God, which everyone's glad I'm not, um, that's what I would be doing is waiting with my coffee and, uh, uh, and, and wanting this thing. And so we know he runs. He runs out. Well, in the Middle East especially, it'd be a lot like where I am in Mexico, but Middle East even more so. Dignified, patriarchal leaders of the tribe would never do that. They would never run. It was undignified. You have to pull up your, I guess they would be skirts in, in a sense, their robes, and they would have to run. So he was doing things that everything he does is unexpected. That's why Jesus is telling this story to the, to the people that he is. So he runs. He hugs and kisses his boy. He doesn't let the son finish his well-rehearsed repentance, right? We know the first, like when he's far off and he says, okay, I'm going to go and tell my father this, this, and this. Well, he gets to this, and that's it. Because the father is embracing him, hugging him. He's not letting him get through the manifestation or the vocalization of his wrong understanding. This is the father taking extreme measures. Then he gives him three things. The finest robe. And when you think of fine robes, what other story from Scripture comes to mind? Joseph. Joseph. 
And it was, Joseph had the place of central importance. Now, we kind of think Isaac was not very good for doing that, but whatever, that's what the story was. So the finest robe is something about being a son and even, typically, the most favored son. A ring for his finger. I won't do that finger because it would come. Anyway, this, a ring for his finger. Rings would have meant certainly inclusion in the family, but also a participation in authority. We think of rings as being used for sealing uh, communications and proving who you really were. So this son, this wayward son, is brought back and given even a ring showing authority, often what the firstborn got. And then sandals for his feet. I always wear sandals. It wasn't like just today, that, but uh, sandals for his feet. Because sandals were a distinguishing mark typically between servants, slaves, let's say, and the sons, the, the, the children, the accepted children of the father. And then the last thing, what's the last thing he does? That's right. But it's interesting. He tells his community to prepare a feast. Why? Because he knew that he had forgiven his son. He knew his attitude towards the son. His servants didn't have any choice but to obey him. But the community around him had to do something to make real. However much they believed it in their heart, they had to make real this thing that the son had returned to full and maybe even a, a more central place than he'd had before. The, the community had to have a feast around him. That's a big part of what this is saying. And so this is the father that Jesus wants us to know. I think in almost every circle, the prodigal son is a well-accepted, central teaching, like all kinds of faith traditions would understand. The prodigal son is one of the most important ways to understand what Jesus was saying about his father. And these are the characteristics of the father. This is sometimes called the parable of the extravagant father because he's so extravagant. He's doing so many things for his son. Now, this is counter to reality, right? We know that in the real world, it doesn't work this way. And so that's why we have the, th the second son with the third misunderstanding. And this is probably the most serious because if you think about it, the story doesn't resolve it. It's left hanging out there. Maybe because a lot of the people in the audience for Jesus in that day were in that place, and he wasn't going to give them an easy answer. He was letting them stew on where they fit in this. And so today, I'm hoping... We're asking ourselves, are these some of the ways that we misunderstand the Father? Do we do that? And what about what Jesus reveals about his Father could help us? So this is for people who have struggled with their own sin and, and issues for a long time. It's for people who have lived far off from any sense of the care of God. This is for people who have been marginalized, hurt, all kinds of things. This is for everyday, normal, real people, this story that Jesus is giving us. And so these attributes or these characteristics of a loving father, can you accept those? Can we take them in? Jesus wants to do that. He wants, and I, we all struggle, right, with different parts of the story in our life journey. We have, I'm, I wasn't just a prodigal. I can still be a prodigal, right? And maybe even tomorrow. But, and I can have these other things. And I can try to keep embracing because no matter, no matter what my part of the journey is, the father remains the same. The Father's always these things. He was always wanting to give forgiveness. He doesn't have the barriers. The barriers are things we put up between ourselves and God. And the Old Testament story can be seen very much as that. 
time after time after time, the Jewish people putting up barriers between themselves and the Father. And so it reaches this culmination where Jesus breaks in. No one gets it, not even his own disciples most of the time. And he's saying, look, this is the way it really is. This is who my Father really is. So that's just me. That's just Robert. Now, there's some other people who like these kind of ideas too. But in the end of the day, it shouldn't be just somebody up front telling anyone else what to think. That's not what Anabaptists do, and that's what we'll look at in a month, is that Anabaptists have always said that we understand God's revelation better together in some fashion. And I was really pleased this morning to see on your overhead, uh, or whatever you call those things, the screen, that um, you have this going deeper, talk it over, what's it called? Talk it over. Um, Because I was trying to think, how can we in this next month interact in a way that you can help me understand better what you're thinking, you as in singular and you as in a church? And when I come back in a month, I'd like to be able to use that to inform how I talk in a month. So the two pieces of homework that I'd like to leave with you are, what's your bias? Do you know you have a bias? Have you acknowledged it? And, and acknowledge, I, when it, bias maybe has a negative feel to it. Maybe I should say, what's your starting point? What's the first thing you tell yourself about God? If you think about God drinking coffee on the porch on a really nice morning, what's his attitude when he wakes up? So think about your own bias. And I'd like to hear from you over this next month, if possible. Tamil said she'd put my uh, email and my phone number in the uh, whatever site it is that it's on, and uh, we can interact maybe. So tell me your bias, your starting point. What story from Jesus, well, from the Bible, because I don't want to limit you to, to what my uh, preferences are. So, yeah. Then the second part is, what does this story tell you about the Father, about reality? When you think of the prodigal son, could you get back to me? What, what stands out to you as ultimate reality that Jesus is trying to get at from this story? So this idea that Anabaptists figure things out better together uh, will be the second distinction uh, or, or part of Anabaptist thought that I want to talk about. And as an Anabaptist, um, like that's not like a flag that I want to fly necessarily. It's just a family of Christianity that I actually was, in a sense, born into, but I didn't really know it growing up. It's actually something that I came to as a missionary living in a very different people who don't know anything about our Western culture. And as I was working through a lot of different things, trying to understand what the gospel was for myself and for others around me, these are the understandings that I've come to. And this idea that we can do this better together is, uh, I think, one of the second uh, strongest aspects uh, for Anabaptists. And I know this church and many others have been... We all do it to some extent. It's not like there's like completely bad and then completely good things uh, here. This is a journey for all of us together. This has been helpful to me to be able to, to identify my own starting place and figure out how the other things fit into it. And, of course, there's all kinds of complex conversations that can uh, come out of this. And, um, but I would like us to finish with this uh, passage from Colossians 1. And it's written in most of our Bibles like... Uh, like a, like a song, I guess, or a psalm. Because as far as we can tell, the early church would have used this. Paul was, was kind of writing down what was very common in the early church. It would have been 
something they said either at the beginning or the end of their gathered times together. It was the beginning of their own liturgy, which is why it's written that way. So I'd like us to stand, please, and then read together out loud this passage here. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Uh, And actually, so I had a little bit more to this. Do you have the next section there, 21? Okay. Yeah, and so I've changed this. I hope that's okay. It's, it's, it's not written down anywhere other than here. So the, uh, Paul wrote it as you, like he was talking to people. I think it's going to be helpful for us to do it in the, we own this. So let's read it together uh, using what I put in there. This includes we who were once far away from God. We were his enemies, separated from him by our evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled us to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought us into his presence, and we are holy and blameless as we stand before him without a single fault. God bless you.